Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. On this rotating sphere orbiting the sun and the center of the Milky Way and rushing toward the great attractor in Virgo, many billions of light years away, I think. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight. First of all, let me apologize for last night. I live in the land of enchantment, and we're going through the monsoons, and the monsoons in the southern United States mean water vapor, lots of it, and that means thunderstorms. And in New Mexico, that means lightning and thunder. And uh, something just took out the power last night, and it flickered. In fact, one of our computers is still not totally happy and I have to have Keith kind of take a look at that. They hate to be turned off suddenly, and it didn't happen suddenly. It literally flickered and then died. So, of course, you have these pulses, and computers do not like electromagnetic pulses of flickering power and voltage and all that stuff. So, uh, again, I apologize for last night. Fortunately, we had a really good program to run for you again. Those of you who missed... Uh, my three-hour web backgrounder going all the way back to the construction of what for me was the generational equivalent of web, which was the famed incredible big eye, the 200-inch telescope on top of Mount Palomar in Southern California. Only decades later would I kind of learn probably why there's a interesting resonance between me and that particular observatory because, of course, George Ellery Hale, this major industrialist from Chicago who moved to uh, Southern California back in the teens and built four of the world's largest observatories, the largest telescopes on Earth up until relatively recently, like maybe just a generation or so ago, when the 200-inch was finally surpassed, one guy. And then I find that he decided to place, for some reason, other than optical seeing and accessibility to civilization and all that good stuff, um, the Mount Palomar Telescope at 33.3 degrees north. To this audience, need I say more? Okay, we have a very packed show because I have to kind of compress what I was going to do last night into what we're going to do tonight as a segue and introduction into my guest tonight, who has some extraordinarily important material to present in the moving, moving context. NASA is literally doing things out front without comment that would have been astonishing just even six, eight, nine months ago. And we'll go through what all that means as we go through the program this evening. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. That takes us to our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, I do like to catch people with a little drama from time to time, the mysterious Martian string bag and other wonders connecting Mars and Earth. Yes, tonight we're going to talk about what I said way back when I wrote Monuments, a long, long time ago. The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. Remember that book? If you don't, you got to go out and get it. It's going to be important background for what's about to happen. And yes, it's 
about to happen, as you will hear uh, both tonight and on many subsequent weekends and shows as we move into, I hate that word, disclosure. I, I really think of it more as the end game, because you know that NASA and all these other international space agencies have been playing games with this for decades. Real head games, trying to get us not to look at what is obvious on all these amazing images. Well, that time is now coming to an end. We are in the end game, as you're going to see tonight. So, um, you find that banner, the mysterious Martian string bag, for Sunday, July 31st, 2022. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And tonight, my guest is George Haas, who is, uh, well, I guess you describe George as an interplanetary archaeologist. I, I think that's probably the appropriate term. Um, after reading my work and following my research for many years, he set up something called the Sidoni Institute. In fact, we'll go into a little bit of history of how we got together. And with that as background and a foundation, he has found some truly fascinating stuff on Mars and even more important for all you Earthers out there who rarely lift your eyes to the heavens or wonder, I mean, is there anybody in this audience who doesn't do that? I highly doubt it. Anyway, um, George is kind of specialized on what I said uh, in that section of monuments, uh, the search for the terrestrial connection. Well, he and our own Keith Morgan have gotten together on a peer-reviewed scientific paper indicating one of those connections here on Earth. And we're going to have time tonight in the three hours, two hours devoted to George and those conversations. And then in the third hour, we're going to have some additional guests popping in. Ron Gerbron is going to join us because there's a interesting new slash old story out of all places Costa Rica tonight, which is incredibly relevant. And then I asked uh, Jonathan Womack to drop by because we're going to even touch on some more connections that are to be found. Uh, I'm really, really convinced now. Uh, and Keith Morgan is convinced because he's done some research on that. And John has done some pioneering work in, of all places, Utah. So we're going to try to get all this in tonight. And whatever we don't get to, we're going to be building to a much fuller show on these terrestrial connections in future weeks. So what you want to do if you have found our page and you have found the guest page, underneath you'll see uh, where it says guest page uh, under the banner on the guest page at the top, you'll see what says fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you directly to this section of Radio with Pictures where we have certain links and news stories that are relevant to, among other things, tonight's conversation. Item number one. Um, as you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, we're kind of in a countdown mode to the launch of the first NASA return mission uh, with a human-rated spacecraft to the vicinity of the moon in you know, decades, like 30 or more years. I haven't actually stopped to do the calculation. The last mission was Apollo 17 in 1972, so you can do the math. It's a long, long time ago. Anyway, um, item number one, the countdown continues for the Artemis One moon mission. 
which will be an unmanned launch of the second most powerful rocket on Earth to the Saturn V of extraordinary historical Apollo lore. This is called the SLS, the Space Launch System. It's been in development for over 10 years, and it is now almost ready for its first free flight unmanned around the moon, leaving at the end of the month of August, which begins um, actually at the end of this show, because we kind of straddle the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment. For all you on the West Coast, it's already August 1st. I'm sorry, East Coast. So for you, it will be literally 29 days from tonight or this morning when you're listening that the Artemis rocket is supposed to lift off for the first time on an unmanned precursor mission around the moon. Now, here's where things, again, get really interesting. Because, of course, as you know, as we have tracked and documented for decades, NASA cannot do a thing without a ritual. A 33-degree ritual, a 19.5-degree ritual, uh, a twice 19.5-degree ritual. So when they posted on that website, which you will get by clicking on that gorgeous image, looking up at the uh, floodlit SLS rocket with the Artemis Orion spacecraft at the very tippy top uh, in those Klieg lights with that gorgeous Florida sky, the lowering free thunderstorm summer sky behind it. Um, We're about 29 days away and if you look at the website carefully, they pick three dates when they can launch. The first is going to be the 29th of August. The second launch opportunity will be the 2nd of September. And the third launch opportunity where they have to kind of uh, recycle will be September 5th. The first date gives them a 42-day mission. I misspoke uh, last week when I said it was going to be two weeks. No, it's actually uh, over a month. The second date, September 2nd, if the, if the launch slips, remember it's a brand new rocket, never flown before, it's had hot fire tests in uh, uh, Louisiana at Mashu, but it has not been launched into space before. This will be a, a virgin test. Um, if, they, if, they, if the countdown misses uh, on the morning of the 29th, they've got a two hour launch window at 8.33 Eastern time on uh, Monday morning, the 29th. So we'll obviously be referencing this on our Sunday night show with hopefully some new information. Uh, Their next opportunity is September 2nd. And if they launch on September 2nd, which I'm really kind of betting they're going to do, is because September 2nd, the launch window is two hours, but the mission duration of looping away from Earth up in a very extended orbit around the moon That mission will last 39, twice 19.5 days. And if you think that's an accident, I've got a bridge in Arizona that I can sell you really, really cheap. Okay, item number two, right under number one, regarding the uh, Artemis details. The unmanned NASA capstone mission, which as I said a few weeks ago, is about the size of a microwave weighs about 55 pounds, carries some very sophisticated radio gear to precursor test the rectilinear orbit 
for the essential gateway lunar space station that NASA will be placing into orbit around the moon in the next couple years after these first uh, uh, couple Artemis missions, the first unmanned, the second uh, human uh, occupied with men and women that will orbit the moon. I think the third mission, which will come in 2025, will be the first crewed mission that will try to land at the lunar south pole. And by that time, the Gateway Lunar Space Station, uh, which is called Gateway for really good reasons, will be emplaced uh, in lunar orbit and performing and, you know, being tested and all that good stuff prior to the first crew of, uh, of uh, Artemis astronauts uh, who will come aboard. Now, the uniqueness of the Gateway Space Station, Lunar Space Station, which is building, obviously, on the experience of uh, the International Space Station in low Earth orbit, is that from that lunar gateway station orbiting the moon, astronauts will be able to reach any point on the lunar surface, both on the near side, on the far side, and most importantly, at the poles. Why the poles? Because that's where it looks like most of the water in the form of ice is hanging out. Which leads us to item number three. South Korea, um, a couple days from now, I think Tuesday the 2nd, is planning its first unmanned all-up spacecraft robotic launch of a very complicated and very elaborate mission, unmanned mission, with its own spacecraft to the moon. And they've got all kinds of really cool instruments, including a couple of cameras, a gamma ray spectrometer, I believe, a magnetometer. They're going to be in a relatively low lunar orbit when they get there. They're going, by the way, by the same uh, slow boat to the moon that the capstone mission is is uh, taking. In other words, the Apollo missions took like three days. Very high energy, very costly in terms of fuel, et cetera, et cetera. These two missions, Capstone and the Korean mission, whose name I believe is Durrani, don't quote me, but I think that's the name, um, and it means something like enjoy the moon. I mean, they've really got an interesting take on, on the mission. Enjoy the moon is the name of their mission. Well, we are definitely going to enjoy the moon through their eyes because, and this is again back to the NASA ritual, when they were building this spacecraft, according to the story you will click on there in item number three, um, they allotted a certain percentage of the weight of the spacecraft, the mass, to a NASA experiment, which is going to be a camera, a very special camera constructed by, wait for it, Malin Space Science Systems. And for those of you who are veterans of our work, you know that Michael Malin is definitely someone that whenever he does something, either on Mars or around the moon, you really want to watch because Michael has hidden agendas. Anyway, this camera is going to be on the spacecraft. It's basically a telescope looking down from 62 miles as this spacecraft orbits uh, uh, in a polar orbit and moves over all of the moon in the space of like a month. But it's going to mainly focus at the North and South Pole because the camera 
is supposed to be so incredibly sensitive, something like 200 times more sensitive than the previous uh, digital CCD camera that NASA sent to the moon on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, that it's going to be able to literally see into the pitch black shadows where the sun never shines due to the uh, tilt of the moon to its orbit. It's almost straight up and down. So you don't get like on Earth where six months you get sunlight on one pole and then six months later you get sunlight uh, for six months on the other pole. No, on the moon, there are regions near the poles where the sun has not shone for literally billions of years. Now, in those deep, deep shadows, which, by the way, are colder according to the LRO measurements with based on radiometers than any other place in the solar system, including the night side of Mercury or the sun side, uh, which is the only thing we can see from Earth, of Pluto, over four billion miles from the central hearth of the solar system, i.e. the sun. Those shadowed regions literally are hovering just a few tens of degrees, maybe less, above absolute zero. And they form what are called cold traps, meaning that if a bouncy molecule like water goes skipping across the lunar surface and it winds up at the poles, which they literally do that, they bounce, they have collisions, and they wind up at the poles, if they get into those shadow regions with those super incredibly cold temperatures, they never get out. It's kind of like Hotel California. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. So the water is trapped in these incredibly cold, almost absolute zero regions that are really, 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 really dark. Except the peaks around them, the crater rims, do get sunlight as the uh, lunar orbits process and nutate because they don't stay in one plane in, uh, in space given the gravitational interactions of the Earth and the Sun and even some of the other planets like Jupiter and, and Mars, Venus. So the moon's orbit wiggles and the moon's rotation wiggles and those wiggles change where these shadow regions are over long periods of time, like decades. But sometimes the peaks stay in sunlight all the time, and it's the sunlight bouncing off those peaks that then can be reflected, it's called scattered light, into those deep, dark shadows. So if you were standing in those shadows in a very, very well-insulated spacesuit, remember, the outside temperature under your feet it's like 400, you know, degrees below zero or even colder. Um, you would be able to see when your eyes dark adapted a faint glimmer of the landscape lit by the scattered sunlight from the surrounding mountains, i.e. the crater rims. Well, this camera, this Malin camera, which is specifically called a shadow cam, is supposed to be able to look into those shadows see the ground, see where the ice has accumulated by its reflectivity, by its sheen, by its uh, brighter, you know, surface uh, uh, light scattering than the surrounding dark lunar material, 
And that's the way that NASA is proposing to map the distribution of water in these deep, dark craters, which is essential for establishing a lunar base at the lunar south pole, which is where Artemis, via the Gateway Space Station orbiting the moon, is going to be taking visitors and American astronauts to and from with a permanent residence on the moon beginning in the next two to three years. Now, why am I interested in all of this? Because, as we're going to do in the coming weeks, I'm going to do another one of these three-hour thingies where I bring you up to date on the status of our research into ancient lunar ruins. I'm going to show you in great detail why this South Korean mission, which will not arrive at the moon until December, Remember, the Capstone mission will get there about a month earlier in November, November 13th, via this slow boat to China slash the moon. And the South Korean mission will get there a month later because it's being launched about a month after Capstone by the same very low energy, very long gravitational surfing route. Um, When they begin their mission in December, the end of the year is going to get really, really, really interesting because... And I don't have time to tell you tonight, but it's unequivocal that the real mission, the real hidden mission for the Malin shadow cam piggybacking on the South Korean unmanned spacecraft and weighing, wait for it, 33 ritual pounds is going to be to take the first close-up images of the ancient domes over the moon and how this all works and why I now know that they have to be doing this. Otherwise, nothing else will work up to and including NASA itself. The fate of NASA itself, as I will explain in the coming weeks, is literally riding on this Korean mission. And we will give you the details when we kind of assemble them all and we'll do another three-hour kind of show and tell as to what we can expect from the unmanned Artemis 1 mission leaving on the 29th of, for you folks on the East Coast, this month, August. Item number four. Now, you've all seen the rather remarkable imagery from the Webb Space Telescope and you followed, obviously, some of our discussions as to what Uh, it really is going to be able to do and the incredible paradigm shift it's going to be uh, enabling across all our cultures, not just the U.S., but every other nation, every other culture here on Earth. We are talking about something that's potentially even more shocking and revolutionary than than the Hubble imagery that came to us decades ago when it was first launched. Well, if you look at item number four, Webb has got another historical... Uh, first under its belt. When Webb was put together, it was not thought that it was going to be very good at finding supernovae, super exploding stars in distant galaxies, because its field of view is so incredibly narrow. It's not like a survey telescope, which looks at a lot of galaxies all across the sky simultaneously with fields of view bigger than the full moon, which is not very big, but it's much bigger than Webb. I mean, the Webb deep field, remember all those galaxies released a couple, three weeks ago? That deep field is literally 
in an area of the sky that would be subtended by a grain of rice perched on your outstretched hand one arm's length away from your eyes. A teeny, 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 tiny fraction of the entire sky. So for that reason, Webb was not thought to be a good um, instrument to look for supernova, particularly supernova in other galaxies, hundreds of millions or billions of light years away. And then just a few days ago, if you look at number four and look at that image in the upper left hand corner, that's a Webb image uh, infrared and right to the left of the second left galaxy. I'm sorry, to the right of the second left galaxy, if you look at the panel below, you can see the little crosshairs and the little dot. That dot is a supernova, a star blowing itself to kingdom come, vomiting its guts into the galactic medium, radiating enough energy to outshine an entire galaxy for a brief period of time of weeks or sometimes even months. That little twink of light was recorded by Webb because Webb may not be able to see in one image, they can make mosaics, of course, um, a lot of galaxies side to side, but it's capable of looking literally billions of years deep into deep time, deep into space. And so what it loses in the wide angle, it obviously picks up in the depth of its capability of looking back through time. And so this galaxy, where this supernova uh, appeared and was captured just after it had blown itself to kingdom come, uh, was photographed four billion light years away, obviously four billion years ago, and Webb caught it just because it could look so deep into deep, deep, deep galactic time. Item number five, um, there was a Chinese launch a few days ago, which as you may remember, was putting up a, another piece of the uh, uh, Chinese uh, space station. Uh, by law, they cannot cooperate. Uh, by law enacted by Congress, by some really kind of weird Republicans, we're not supposed to cooperate with the Chinese. Remember the old phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Well, the Congress, when the Republicans led it, made it impossible for us to keep the Chinese close, to keep an eye on them. So they had to do all their stuff with space stations separate from our space station. So they're launching their space station separately. And again, like the couple, three times before, they did not program their big launch rocket, something like 72 tons, to come back in a place in the ocean where it wouldn't hurt anybody. They just kind of let it re-enter. Well, it re-entered uh, yesterday evening over the Indian Ocean, fortunately, and it's not, uh, didn't fall on anybody, didn't hurt anything, but really, if they keep doing this, they're not going to be making many friends in the international community. Which leads us to item number six. There's a very serious discussion now, which apparently was spearheaded by uh, some statements that the administrator of NASA, former Senator Bill Nelson made a few weeks ago, that China is wanting to take over the moon. And there's a story from the Washington Examiner, which as you know, is the uh, kind of Republican conservative counterpart to the Washington Post in Washington, D.C. And they have this very interesting article, is China really plotting to take over the moon? 
Now, both of those comments, Nelson's comment a few weeks ago, and now the examiner a few days ago asking the same question, presupposes that, that there's something on the moon that in fact is worthy of taking over. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that there is in fact something well worth taking over, and that is there is something on the moon besides rocks and rills and radiation. Well, if you uh, look at your clock, you'll see we have reached the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I'm going to tell you why we're playing Gene Roddenberry's Alexander Courage's original Star Trek theme. It's very important, so wait for it. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Star Trek. We shall return. everyone. The reason we're playing Star Trek tonight is because Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhuru, died yesterday evening at the age of 89 here in Silver City, New Mexico, the land of enchantment. And Bill Russell, the famed basketball player, the pioneer, the civil rights activist, the incredible brave pioneer back in the 60s who sided with Muhammad Ali when no one else could understand what uh, he was doing in protesting his participation in the Vietnam War. Both of them died yesterday. Bill was 88. I imagine there's a pretty interesting party going on upstairs right now because Nichelle was not just an actress. She wasn't just another pretty face. Nichelle was a pioneer. I met Nichelle back in the 1970s. I'm extremely grateful for the 
many hours that we spent together in our conversations. And as you know, if you've listened to the show at all over these past several years, uh, Gene Roddenberry and I became friends when uh, the whole concept of Star Trek on NBC was threatened with cancellation. And so I was part of the effort, along with people like Isaac Asimov and uh, many others, to try to save the show and be Joe Trimble and other people were able to collaborate on getting thousands and thousands of letters into NBC to basically, for one of the first times in network history, keep a show on the air after the, you know, the suits, as we used to call them, at the upper levels of the network had decided that, well, there really wasn't much of an audience and so they could safely cancel. Of course, it turns out that that was a lie. Star Trek, as we have uh, exemplified here with uh, the testimony of my friend Susan, who was Gene's right-hand assistant for many decades, um, was in fact incredibly successful on NBC. So someone, even back then, was kind of jiggering the books, trying to make it look like the idea of boldly going where no one had gone before, the idea of finding strange new worlds and strange new life forms on those worlds was not really supposed to take hold. And so after three years, Star Trek was quietly shelved. Well, um, it did not go gently into that good night or into the galaxy. And over the years, a lot of us tried to get uh, something resurrected. And ultimately, those efforts did succeed. Well, one of my private efforts with Gene had always been to get him to pay attention to NASA for serious, real connections between the fictional Star Trek and what was going on with NASA right then. Back then, of course, the 1970s was right now. I didn't have very much success because Gene was definitely committed to avoiding the, shall we say, sticky situations of mixing fiction and reality. And of course, back then, I had no idea that NASA was hiding whole planets full of ancient ruins and things on the moon and on Mars and on the satellites of Jupiter and Saturn. And I mean, I had zero idea that any of that stuff was out there. I just realized even then that unless we became a multi-planet species, unless we diversified ourselves across the solar system and then someday beyond, that in fact we would be limited to not many years of just being on this one planet. In other words, we had to become, in the words of Elon Musk, a multi-planet species. Well, little did I know, but behind the scenes, Nichelle Nichols, this very quiet, retiring actress who, after the first year on Star Trek, wanted to go back to her work as an actress and as a dancer, and she wanted to do Radio Music City and all those normal Hollywood and Broadway things. And then one night at a party after the first season had wrapped, she was, you know, kind of mingling with the guests there in Hollywood. And someone came up behind her and said, uh, you're Nichelle Nichols, right? She turned around and there was Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, they started to talk. 
And then she kind of unburdened herself and said that she was in this TV show and she wanted to go back to her real life. You know, she didn't really belong in science fiction, all that. And he obviously, as she says in her own books and told me, you know, personally many, many decades ago, she said to him, or he said to her rather, you can't do that. And she said, why? She said, well, every Thursday night, we all gather around the TV set to see you on network television. You're a model. You're a role model. Think of all those little girls who look at you fulfilling in an all-white crew with aliens a role that they could only dream about. And so Nichelle took a pause, and her life took a change, and ultimately she became a literal... Uh, contract personality with NASA in the 1970s, working to recruit black astronauts, men and women, into NASA at a time when it was lily white and all male. And she succeeded. Thousands upon thousands of black astronauts applied, and over 1,500 have been accepted, and in all different levels, you can now see this incredible diversity in our beloved local neighborhood space agency, and it's all because of Nichelle Nichols. So, Lieutenant Nichols, live long and prosper. Well, tonight we're going to be talking with an old friend of mine, George Haas, who has not been on the show for far too long. So let me get the right screen racked up here, and I will give you some of uh, George's very interesting background. He is the founder and premier investigator of the Mars Research Group known as the Sedoni Institute and is a member of the Society for Planetary Study Research, SPSR. His research now encompasses over 30 years of study and analysis of NASA and ESA photographs of Mars. Uh, George's early schooling was in the visual arts. He was an art instructor, a writer, a curator, and former director of the Sculptors Association of New Jersey. During the 1980s, he exhibited extensively throughout New Jersey and the New York area and was represented by Grace Harkin Gallery in New York's East Village. He had a one-man show at the O.K. Harris Gallery of Art in Soho in 1989. Over the last two decades, Haas has studied the art and iconography of North and South American cultures, such as the Olmec, the Maya, and the Aztecs. He has been a member of both the pre-Columbian societies at the University of Pennsylvania and in Washington, D.C., and it was George that I believe I first called when I discovered the so-called split face of the giant mile-long face on Mars, that one half was a uh, uh, humanoid and the other half seemed to be a um, hominid uh, feline and the twain did meet on the Sidonia Plains of Mars and so I reached out to him and it was George who first told me that, oh my God, that kind of art, that fusion of two effigy symbologies in one artwork was in fact well known 
in Central American ancient Mayan art. So, George, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, good evening, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, hear your voice again and uh, be on your show. It's been a while. It's been too long. So, am, am I remembering correctly? Did I reach out to you because someone had told me that you actually had this this set of images showing this fusion of art uh, styles already here on Earth? Yeah, I think uh, I was living in Jackson, New Jersey, and my wife and I had just got back from a weekend vacation. And on our answering machine was uh, Richard Hoagland asking me to give him a call <laughs> because uh, you wanted to talk to me about these uh, Mesoamerican bifurcated and two-faced masks and uh, artwork that they were producing that looked very similar to what we were seeing uh, with the face on Mars. So let's start there. When did you first realize that the Mayans had done this incredible fusion, which I think, of course, has deep, deep symbolic roots, and now I think we can trace them all the way back to our famous and familiar red planet. But how did you get into looking at these in the first place? Well, it was kind of accidental. Uh, as you know, we were all anticipating the new, the three images that the Mars Global Surveyor released, uh, with the face on Mars, which was very dark. This was back in what, 89, I think? 19, 1998. Ah, 98, okay. Right, with, with the, you know, the first pictures of the face on Mars. And uh, we were all very excited about it, and uh, you saw that it actually confirmed the humanoid and feline side like we were seeing in the, the Viking imaging. And I was really interested in finding out where is this idea of, you know, two faces coming from? Because uh, most people think of, you know, high art as the Roman art, everything's symmetrical. Uh, you know, most cultures that your average person knows about produces symmetrical art. And uh, I was in Barnes & Noble. This is how it really happened going through some archaeological books, and I saw a book by Linda Shelley, um, and I started thumbing through that, and there was a, a bifurcated mask in there, and there was also this, this uh, three-leafed uh, emblem that was on some of the headdress, and uh, we were seeing that on the face on Mars, because you were the one that figured out that this could be mirrored, so you could actually see the symmetry, what actually the humanoid side looks like and the feline side. And when the mirroring of the 1998 image was performed. You could see like this tri-leaf emblem was on the forehead of, and he hit the, the face on Mars uh, looked very simian. It was uh, very, uh, a bold face. It had this headdress, very Egyptian type of flange headdress on each side. There was this three-leaf uh, symbol in the forehead. And that's when I found that, oh, this same symbol is in Mesoamerica also. Oh. And there's these early Olmec sculptures that have these flanged headdress on the side that look very Egyptian. And there's sculptures of these. I mean, it's, it's no mystery to archaeologists, but you have these same type of Egyptian type of flanged headdress that we're finding in, in Olmec art. Wait, wait, so wait, 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 wait. You mean here on Earth we have a, a conflation of Egyptian-style art in a Mesoamerican Olmec pre-Mayan context? Oh, yeah. Um, there's, there's a... Well, let me tell you why that's, of, let me tell you why that's really news. Because we found, Ron Gerbron and I have found exactly the same stuff going on with the Perseverance rover imagery out of Jezero Crater, about 35 million miles away on Mars. Uh, well, you know this is all connected, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I do now. Right. So uh, when I found that, 
Uh, that's when one thing led to another, and then I started seeing these two-faced masks with a humanoid and a feline on one side. Uh, the, the Maya would do uh, life-death mask. They would do these masks that had, like, an old man on one side and a dog on another. So this whole idea of these, this bifurcated technique, it was also in uh, Peruvian art, all, all the Mesoamerican cultures, uh, Aztec, uh, Zapotec, uh, the Maya. And uh, so that just opened up a floodgate that this is a, a legitimate type of art. Uh, you know, we don't have to think if we find structures or, or artifacts on Mars that they're going to be, you know, Romanesque. Uh, we're not going to find columns and, and Roman temples. This is going to be more uh, pyramidal. Well, wait, wait, wait. See, you're glossing over the shocking, stunning, absolutely unbelievable reality here, which is when I started this way back when, looking at those original images from from Viking, uh, the Viking orbiter, the Sidonian images from orbit looking down, and then following the work of DuPietro and Molinar, who did a pretty good first cut, but of course they had no idea of the depth of what was there to be researched, even just at Sidonia. I was of the opinion that when we found anything on Mars, if we, if we had found something, it was going to be, quote, aliens, right? Different culture, different planet, different species, different origin, different everything. The only anomaly in that picture was the stunning work of Ray Bradbury, who published a series of short stories, eventually collected into a novel called The Martian Chronicles, which then became a television series uh, with, with um, oh, what was his name, uh, Rock Hudson, as, Rock the, Hudson as, yeah. as, as the key hero with his children. And it was, it was the Bradbury heresy in the 1950s when the Martian Chronicles was first published that humans go to Mars in the first expedition, they land, and who greets them? But human beings, earthlings, living in right. wonderful Victorian houses with, you know, vintage squares and white steeples and the whole nine yards. And for, for someone reading as a kid, this in the 1950s, it made a stunning impression on me because no one could ever have imagined that you go to another planet in that milieu and find yourselves. Well, fast forward the film decades and we see the face on Mars and lo and behold, half of it looks like us and the other half, as I laid out at the UN in 1992, looks like a big giant pussycat, i.e., a terrestrial lion, and there was no scientific background for that shattering paradigm uh, anomaly that one could possibly have anticipated in any real science. And yet, when I turned to you and you started doing your homework, we find this motif of these fusions of human and other artwork all over Central America. Yeah, it, it's pretty stunning, and we're finding the same type of uh, uh, iconography on Mars. I mean, th we are living in the twilight zone. Rod, move over. you got more company tonight, okay? You guys have a lot to talk about. A lot. Well, I, I don't think... Uh, I talk to a lot of people about this, and a lot of them, they just don't know how to react to this, because it just seems too crazy. <laughs> but, it's uh, you know, it's right there in front of you. Well, wasn't it that famous... And then, famous of course, the question is, why is it Mesoamerican? Why is it... Exactly. Aztec, see, that kind of, like, throws out their, their confidence, because they, they, they expect to see something more, uh, you know, Western. 
or, or, or from, uh, you know, like the Romanesque type of thing. Greek, Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman, correct, yeah. So uh, that brings us to uh, this whole Mesoamerican connection, uh, which, um, you know, there's a big debate on did the Europeans come across the Barren Straits and come up through Canada, down through, you know, uh, down through into uh, California and then go down south into South America, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming into the New World. Uh, my theory Dur- is dur- that during went- the Ice Age, when the when the ice had withdrawn the ocean, so you could literally walk from one continent to another along the shore and not get your Correct. feet wet. But well, I think what archaeologists are finding now that uh, Europeans were here, Asians and people of, of that area were here before the Ice Age, long before. Right, and they were down in South America, Peru, Chile, uh, Cusco, all, all these places down well, there. Well, the weird thing and is in Tierra del Fuego, the oldest New World settlements, and I'm talking really old, are at the southern tip of South America, and they get younger as you go north as opposed to being the oldest north and the youngest south, which would follow the so-called migration hypothesis. Yeah, the famous settlement down there, the Corral. Yep. It dates before the pyramids. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, mainstream media doesn't even pay attention to that because it just throws all the history books upside down. And th- my theory is that the, they came up from the, the um, South America up through into North America. It's just the other way around. Which means they had to have arrived by some other means. Correct. <laughs> Things that we have to try to figure out. And that's what brings us to this odd... A geoglyph that's sitting in Alberta, Canada. Well, let's not get there yet. Let's not get there yet. I want to do do the proper segue. Uh, I didn't know this afternoon that Nichelle had died, so I had to make an incredibly important room to celebrate her and what she's done to bring the real and the fiction together. We're, We're almost at the edge of the Star Trek universe, and mainly because of Nichelle Nichols and her determination to drag Roddenberry and NASA kicking and screaming into the 23rd century. So she really is an incredible pioneer, and I was so honored to have met her and worked with her uh, back in the 70s. Anyway, this is all a prelude to how do we get into me inviting you on? Well, if your ears were burning a few weeks ago, it's because uh, uh, Robert Morningstar, presented one of your photographs that was taken from uh, Neville Thompson's Gigapan um, a couple, three weeks ago of something that looked exactly like, to both me and Ron and others, like an orange string bag that you pick up at the supermarket to put your oranges in and take them home. I mean, it looks so much like a damn string bag, and yet NASA took wonderful photographs of it and never said a word. Then a few weeks later, after uh, Robert and Ron and I had talked about it and you on the show, and I said, well, I've got to go and find George and get him on. We, we, you know, talk about the background. Then NASA released more pictures showing this little piece of twisted string, literally Right, it was blowing. like a week later they, they came out with the, the, uh, the, the tangled piece of string there. Yeah. And they made a big deal. They made the, the, the string one of their pictures of the week, which they do, pretending, of course, that people are writing in and voting these pictures best, second. I really doubt that. I think it's all... Well, they do that all the time now. All these 
oddities or pictures of the week like nonchalant. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but, but they don't comment about their origin, what they might be, what they might imply. It's like years ago, a, a deep state intel agent actually worked for week for this, the Secret Service, said to me, in the intel community, there's something known as soak time. Like you soak clothes before you wash them. You, you soak them in, right. you know, Tide or Suds to get the... Saturate the, before using. Exactly. <laughs> so what they're doing is a tried and true intel uh, community technique where they soak the public in the images, in the data, in the reality of what the pictures are showing, but they don't say anything. They let social media now spread the word and widen the circle. So when they ultimately do come out with an explanation, people will say, oh, I saw that months ago, or I saw that two years ago. Or in other words, they're desperately trying not to panic civilization because their model is, if we find out all this stuff out there is real, we're all going to freak out. Right. Yeah, they release all this stuff so they can say, we're not hiding anything. We released all this. Exactly. There's nothing there. And if you were tam- too damn dumb to know what it is, that's your fault. We put it out there. Plausible deniability. That's the watchword in Washington. So they put out the string without saying anything. They did not put out your string bag, which I find really bizarre because they took two pictures of it two separate images so we know it's there now one has been cut off to the right and ron may explain that a little later but it's unequivocally there it's unequivocally what it looks like and the question of course is the only question really is how did it get there did we bring it with us with perseverance is it part of the so-called edl the entry descent and landing system like they claim the little bright reflective thingy with the geometric dot pattern on it was from the EDL entry process and just kind of right, blew the, over. The plastic shard? Well, it, it may be plastic. It may be something else. Kevlar. It probably is Kevlar. Um, it looks kind of cubical. looks like it has a shape. But they're claiming that was from the EDL, the entry, descent, and landing of Perseverance. It just kind of blew down there, and they wound up finding it out of all the hundreds of thousands of square miles in Jezero Crater. They just happened to wander by the place where this little piece landed. But they have not explained the string. They haven't explained how it blew into the frame and how it blew out again. And Ron will talk to that. And they have absolutely totally avoided even profiling your string bag, which raises the ante and says very profoundly, this human looking stuff has only one of two origins. Either Perseverance brought this with us and it's more detritus, you know, kind of, you know, loose on the landscape, or it's indigenous to Mars and the fact that it looks so human is only the indication that our human culture really came from Mars and we're the great, 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 great descendants of our great, great, great Martian human ancestors. And that's where the Badlands Guardian comes in. Right. Now, this string, uh, we have seen some pictures similar to this in the past. Uh, but they called them fibers. They were just one string. If you remember seeing pictures of that, and NASA would say they were just the filaments. 
Right. Uh, but this string is, is more than a filament. This this is just a... It looks like somebody just wound up a piece of string and threw it on the ground. Yeah. And it we know it blew in in the wind, which is a whole other story, because given the NASA that we have been told about for like half a century, going back to Mariner 4, the atmosphere is supposed to be only as dense as that at 100,000 feet over the Earth. There are no winds that can pick up anything, let alone a string at 100,000 feet. Um, you can talk to the X-15 pilots, you can talk to the astronauts, you can talk to the U-2 pilots. Uh, there ain't no winds that can pick up string at 100,000 feet, which means if that string literally blew into frame a few weeks ago and then three or four Martian days later blew out, which Ron is very carefully documented, you can actually see the little indentations on the top of the sand dune where it rested for a couple, three days before the wind blew it away. In order for that mass of string, and you can do a calculation, if it's, you know, cellulose, it has one mass. If it's wire twisted up, it has another much heavier mass. Nothing like that should be blown around on Mars. And you can see when it's gone in that third image, there are little indentations in the sand on the top of the little dune where it sat for three days while NASA kept taking picture after picture after picture of it. And they're all on the NASA RAW website. So getting back to the Badlands Guardian, at some point, if this stuff is indigenous, and I think I can prove tonight that it's indigenous, and we'll do that momentarily. At some point, the humans who had this culture on Mars had to leave Mars because Mars was getting, as Elton John says, not the kind of place to raise your kids. So where could they have gone? Well, there's only two places, depending upon their technology, either they went to the stars or they had to come to Earth or they could have gone both places with Earth being closer and more readily available and easier and cheaper and all that good stuff. And then you look in the terrestrial record and there's all kinds of wondrous weird things that suddenly appear in the terrestrial record, like the cave art in Spain and in uh, you know, South, uh, South Pacific and in uh, uh, you know, Europe. Uh, and then there are these huge geoglyphs, one of which is sitting there in Canada called the Badlands Guardian, which my friend Keith has been researching for years. So I think that these huge art forms on Earth that are only now just beginning to be recognized as not just tricks of light and shadow are a direct lineal descendant of the pioneers who first came from Mars to Earth. Human pioneers. Well, and I strongly agree. Um, if the audience is not aware of the Badlands Guardian, it is uh, in Alberta, Canada. Uh, nobody knew about this until uh, a, a woman by the name of Lynn uh, Hickok found this in 2006 when she was uh, looking for a dinosaur museum to take her kids to. And she went on Google Earth, and uh, this caught her eye. And that's when this came to the uh, mainstream uh, awareness of this formation. Okay. I think now we... Uh, oh, I, well, actually, we're at the top of the hour, so why don't we kind of hold it there? Uh, my sure. guest this morning is George Haas. We're discussing what may have happened when a culture from the planet Mars 
decided by necessity that it had to come to Earth. And if that happened, is there any evidence from that time period, which would be literally tens of thousands of years ago, is there any evidence on Earth that in fact such a transition was made? Well, one way that you figure that out is you look at the massive geoglyphic art forms we see all over Mars, and Keith Laney has done some really sterling work in this direction. And then you look on Earth to see if there is anything of similar import or similar design. And yes, there is. And we'll get back to the details when we return right after this short break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs> 